Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Adriel's Curious City, where I get to speak with the brilliant entrepreneurs, the artists, educators about their philosophies, strategies, and visions for their industry. Today on the podcast is Rhonda Binda. Personally, I don't think much about government, and therefore, I don't understand it well. But in the spirit of my Curious City, I will happily ask questions to learn more. Rhonda has worked for the transition team bringing in the Obama administration and the Trump administration to the White House. She spent three years as the executive director of the Jamaica Center Business Improvement District, bringing an economic turn to the city. And now she's VP of Policy and Director of Regional Smart Cities Initiative for a wonderful startup called Venture Smarter. Rhonda's amazing background means that she can provide insight into what is otherwise a very confusing business of government in a world which many of us see in a negative light. She's got great stories to share about working on three presidents, bringing technology into a very old-fashioned city, and founding a tech company focused on redefining what it even means to be a city. I learned so much from Rhonda and really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you do as well. So please enjoy this episode with Rhonda Binda. Rhonda, welcome to Curious City. Thank you, so happy to be here. This is gonna be super fun. This is our second attempt at this, so this one will make sure it goes well. Um, I think we should start by clearing the air a little bit. Uh, you and I are both from New York. Correct. Right? You're from Jamaica, Queens. Yes, sir. I was born in Flushing, Queens. Excellent. You and I both went south for college. That's right. You went to Duke. Yes. I went to the beautiful, venerable, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so needed to get that out apologies, of the way. Apologies, apologies. <laughs> no, I, I, I was happy there. <laughs> I hope you were happy at Duke. What uh, sent you south? What's, what, what brought you eight states south to go to college? I had the luxury um, and privilege of getting a scholarship to a boarding school that made me think that I sort of already had the New England experience. And, but at that school, I met people from other parts of the country that were so interesting and taught me so much more than I, I knew growing up in New York. Yeah. So I it was continuing to pursue that um, curiosity about the rest of the country. The warm weather is also nice. <laughs> um, but I really just wanted to keep, I only applied to schools uh, primarily in, in the West and in the South. Oh, me too. I was entirely in the South. I knew eventually I'd end up back in New York and like had to apply to schools in the South for those same reasons. Super fun. Do you enjoy your time in North Carolina? Well, Duke is such an incredible experience. Um, I had a great time. It was somewhat of a culture shock also coming from New York um, in, some, in some ways, but just the ex- overall experience, obviously the, the education, um, the types of innovations that are coming out of North Carolina, just being in that environment. And I mean, it, it, they were planting the seeds for what we have today happening in Research Triangle Park. So it was a little bit of head, yeah. but I was there what seeing that there? build. What years? I was there ninety-five to ninety-nine. Nine great years. So yes. uh, this podcast started off in Durham, and so like a lot of people have been on the podcast with people who built up Durham from like two thousand, let's say, through what it is now, which is an incredible turnaround. Uh, so absolutely, there were so many uh, people moving in um, from other tech 
hubs, um, whether they were from the U.S. or other countries. Yeah. And I saw that that continued to grow, and it was largely driven because of the universities. Yeah, I mean, you have three great universities there, and you had a lot of really smart investment. I think for the last three years in a row or something like that, North Carolina has had the highest domestic migration into the state out of any other state in the U.S., which means more people are coming into North Carolina than anywhere else. So I saw it happen there, and I really believe any city that puts in that type of effort around the community planning, um, building out the infrastructure so that to, to be attractive, anyone can do it. And so you left uh, college and you went to D.C., right? It was supposed to just be a pit stop. It was, uh, I, I figured um, I, I accepted a consulting position. Uh, the training was in the South. It was in Florida. And I pushed back my start date so that I could do something different, um, you know, and you know, have a little bit of time before. This is like traditional consulting you were going to start? Yes. Management consulting? Yeah, management consulting, Price Waterhouse, IT consulting. And I was so very excited about that. I've always been interested in technology ever since a kid. Yeah. And um, I got sidetracked for a long time um, in DC. So. Well, you're, <laughs> all right, so your first job on LinkedIn is special assistant to the White House. Yes. Which is the coolest title <laughs> I think anybody has ever had. I have no idea what it means, and I don't know if you're legally I'm allowed to tell me, but I'm that. super curious. <laughs> what does the special assistant to the entire White House do? Well, well um, I, was, I was assigned to a particular uh, office, the Office of Public Liaison. Now it's called the Office of Public Engagement. But special assistants are the assistants to normally to directors um, of, who are assistants to the president. So that's so you're like about a your cousin couple. twice removed. Yes, to, to yes, and and then um, you know there's 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 you know the, the pecking order yeah. um, to be able to have that assistant to the president title. Um, those who are in the know know to ask for that as well as whatever office you're a director of, um, and to be a special assistant to someone like that is you know is was an incredible experience to um, you know to, to to have just out of school and particularly President Clinton, a lot going on the last few years. I mean, um, we, we really worked hard to make sure that we left the country um, on the right track, etc. So it was the, the, the people that were around me at that age, it still blows my mind that I even had access to be in the same room with them. Yeah. So, so tell me about those people, because government attracts a lot of different kinds of people, um, but the ones at the top are the smartest, most ambitious, often the most uh, good, uh, desiring people. Um, but in your experience, I mean, what were those people like who were around you, uh, if you can try to draw some comparisons across them all, across well, the very best performers? So, you know, it's, it's made up of political appointees and the, um, the career appointees. And the career appointees that wind up in the White House are put on detail many times from agencies. So it really is the cream of the crop of the people who are running the federal government. And what's the difference there, career appointee versus political appointee? So career appointees um, are, are, are civil servants, and they you know, enter into the system and move up a rank. There's something called a GS scale. And then once you get to the top of that, you become senior executive service, and then you can you know, become assistant secretary. So your job is to be in politics. I wouldn't say politics. I would say government. Okay, government. I would say government. Um, it's you know people who are very interested in in policy, uh, people who um, you know make sure that things are running for us. You know, and it's amazing the impact that this group of people has, the civil, the civil service has, on 
the, the rest of the country. So that really just like opened my mind, you know, especially growing up in New York. Um, we have our own like sort of ecosystem bubble here, but there really is a lot that affects our everyday that that's happening in Washington DC. The political appointees are people who um, are somehow affiliated with the with the president, um, and they so they're in it for four for eight years or until that president leaves office. They serve at the pleasure of the president, and um, normally it's really at their will as well. So you could come in and leave your high-paying job or school or um, your nonprofit, whatever you were doing. You may tell yourself you only are able or would want to do it for a certain amount of time because there's a high turnover and burnout. You know, really, the the federal government can't shut down, um, especially the White House. Um, if something comes up to that level, it's usually an emergency. And um, I still get uh, flashbacks when I hear certain um, sounds um, that remind me of beepers because back then before cell phones were, um, that's what we used whenever there was some sort of emergency or you had to respond quickly to know. Um, and so, so the political appointees are, are also a very interesting group of people because they, come, they can come from a variety of backgrounds and their role really is to, is to carry out the vision of the president um, or the secretary of that agency. And so they're able to, if they know how to work properly with the civil, civil servants and to empower um, the, the leaders within and the managers within those, that, those, that, that, that agency or that office, getting their buy-in um, is important initially to, to implement the vision of the leader. So, tell me, so on that point there, I mean, government is notoriously slow on a lot of things because it's very difficult to push forward large initiatives and in, in a large bureaucratic enormous organization for those managers that you saw when you were you know 22 and just started there and just graduated those managers that you looked at and said wow she's doing a killer job making things happen and she said this would happen and six months later there's a result and holy smokes like there's a new city in new mexico that no one thought existed <laughs> or whatever the thing is yeah. What tactics or strategies did you see those kinds of people do to really get things done that differentiated them from what might be the stereotype? Uh, well, it's, it's really about collaboration and um, making sure that they're rewarded for taking the risk. And if it fails, the political appointee needs to be responsible for that. So giving the credit to the, agent, the, the civil servants and those managers because that's the rub. Govern there's no incentive to, for example, cut back on costs in your office because then you have a smaller budget, right? But if you can build in, so there's, you know, that it's sort of counterintuitive when you think about having a better, more efficient government. But if the managers um, are working with the political appointees who, what if, if the vision is to uh, make um, to make government smaller, cut back costs. While that has no incentive, there's really no incentive for an agency or an office to do that. Um, look at you know a bonus structure, for example, or you know just other other things you can do to keep up morale, so that um, or you know giving giving somewhere where you may where what that you know something that's important to that office that maybe they were never able to, and and then taking and then also making sure they know if we move down this road, this more innovative path that the that this particular office never went down. 
I'm, I, I, as the appointee overseeing this, the vision for the, the game plan, what we're doing over, I will take the, I will take the fall, and I'll be responsible for explaining why this, you know, did or didn't work. So that's, you know, those I think are the two main factors as to why you don't see a lot of change in government. But there's so much could, that political appointees do, and every time, and you know, depending on the administration, it goes one direction or the other. But you can really swing things. And, um, and then there's other tools that you can use that can institutionalize change. So that, you know, that goes at a deeper policy level, um, but there, there are ways um, you know, to be able to reverse or to house certain policies rather than um, you know, you know, having an entire legislative movement uh, you know, with the Office of Legislative Affairs working with Capitol Hill. There are other ways you can um, make changes internally, um, whether it's to the structure of that of that office or agency, or um, or you know, working with executive orders to push things through. And you also you so you started in like '99. Mm -hmm. uh, so Clinton was on his way out and wrapping up, mm -hmm. and then Bush was about. You you started before the election or anything like that. So you were there a really interesting time where there was a huge shift of one very radical uh, radical meaning very different than the one that came after him. Um, were you there for that transition? I um, assisted the Bush transition team with providing, um, you know, binders, documents, briefings about where we are and sort of like where where we think um, best to next steps to take um, from a purely practical perspective because it's their prerogative, the next administration, to come in and to either take it all and say, we love this, we're going to expand this, we'll keep it going, or scrap it. How often does that happen? I mean, my thought is that like Republicans came in, Democrats left, uh, Clinton did this wrong and that wrong and the other thing. I guess tech bubble hadn't happened yet, but like there's uh, certain economic dips. Let's scrap it all. Let's like, and all your work is just for naught. There, did there, it ever feel like that, or, or how how was that kind of what, what was going through your mind? Where you're like, it's a totally different presidency, and we worked so hard for all this stuff, and then like who knows what will happen? Yeah, there's definitely a feeling of loss because. Um, you know, especially for programs that were proven to be successful, you know, but times change and, um, and there are, I, I see good in, in, in both sides of a lot of policies. I know that that's sort of strange, but I, but I do think it's healthy to have, to try, you know, di different approaches and, to, and for that co competition of best ideas. A lot of times that happens, it's happening anyway at the local, state and local level. Um, but to be able to, to test those out uh, and, and, um, and see the difference, it's, it's been hard because of, of uh, I think in the past, because of rhetoric and short histories to know and to say, okay, this is legitimately um, a better policy as opposed to the, another. But now with data, I think that we're gonna be able to really change the way that policy is made because we're going to be able to collect our, the res, uh, you know, and, and in real time in many cases, you know, the impact um, of whether it's a, you know, a, you know, take tax reform that just whether it's more of a, um, you know, this X amount of impact in the economy um, be, uh, by by the corporate tax cut or a tax cut to for individuals, whatever it is. So in the past, it's been a lot of just sort of you know, speculation theory, John Locke stuff. And now you can get we real can, answers. I think we can, and it'll, so it'll be less speculative. You know, saying, "Well, it's good to have different ideas and competition, and you know, and to, you know, it's good for 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 adjustments." 
Um, and you know, and especially if there are, is an overall sort of if that, if that is the what the American people voted for, then we should be moving in that direction of whoever has the right to make that. So how policy. do you balance? So you just said, on the one hand, like data can provide right answers, not like more conversation. Like this is the right answer eighty-eight percent of the time. So let's do this. First, this is what the American people voted for. American people are emotional people. All people are emotional people. So they don't necessarily care about data, right? Like, they don't care about the answer being written at some computer somewhere. They care about what they know and feel because look outside or look around or look at my life or I have less money or I have more money or I live in this neighborhood or that neighborhood or whatever. So how does government reconcile the fact that over the last 10 years, uh, we've had access to an incredible amount of data, and over the next 10, there'll be even more as we figure out what to do with it, and we'll have, quote unquote, right answers to things, versus Ameri people don't care. Or, uh, where does that balance play in for government? Well, I, I, th I still think we're at the beginning stages. I, you know, in New York City, we have um, open data, you know, um, MIC, and there, there are data collection um, uh, efforts. What we're working to do at Venture Smarter is to work with universities and uh, to collaborate with governments to really make that data uh, more specific. And I'll give you an example of in Queens. So um, working with the New York Hall of Science, uh, the area in and around Corona, it's, it's still very hard to understand what that data means for that neighborhood. So we haven't, it is big data, and we haven't been able to sort of localize it in the way I think that we really need to not only, um, so under, uh, individuals can sort of understand and put in such a sort of certain demographics or whatever it is, um, but also just to even convert it into something that would make sense to support a, a policy recommendation. The, the US Chamber of Commerce and this is one of the things I admire about their approach, they've always been, before this was even something we talked about, very data-driven in that regard with respect to the policy that they put forward. And you know, we have the ability to, to, um, to work with especially young people, universities. Um, I think that, um, that the newer, that, that, you know, that the generation that, um, that is coming up now is much more attuned to what that could and should, and what that means, because it hits every aspect of business as well as they're looking. And I think it, it would be something interesting to, and we've, we've started to do that with um, University of Cincinnati and the city, where it, they're housing some of the data that's being collected. And also, you know, it, as, as citizens, we tend to uh, trust the universities more sometimes than the government having our data. Yeah. So, so can, you give, can you tell me, so we can talk about Venture Smarter, which is the current work you're working on. Um, so can you, I guess, briefly tell just what is Venture Smarter, what you guys are doing, and then transition that into a specific example of what you're doing with the city of Corona, or the area of Corona, Queens, or with Cincinnati, say this is what it is now, this is what Venture Smarter is going to do with it, and this is what it might be five years from now. So, um, you know, many of us who are, you know, who are part of the Venture Smarter community, um, we... Uh, Entered in, um, you know, various stages over the past, you know, of, of you know, several five to fifteen years into the smart city space, and faced a lot of challenges, and um, a lot of pain points in terms of how to tech, how do people in technology um, that have certain amount of data, 
um, convince the government, this is actually going to solve a lot of problems for you if you want to use, this will be better policy to go digital, for example, in you know, uh, certain payments or whatever, so w whatever the solution is, but we don't yet have it um, you know, adopted um, you know, uh, you know, universally. An example of that specifically would be what? So, um, so, so there's, there is um, more of a movement towards this now, and I really don't see this happening, but you take a look at the opioid epidemic and um, that it's still so difficult to track and to collect the data um, that, that, that is, is for, um, you know, that, that, is, that applies to an individual that saw a doctor, received a prescription, um, maybe had to check into a hospital at some point, whatever, what, uh, you know, or maybe had an overdose, whatever, whatever um, the scenario is. Rather than having one cl uh, cloud-based database that that individual can put that, you know, sort of um, information in as they're going, or it can be, or the pharmacist can, or the doctor can. It's still very hard to understand what this, how did we get to this point where it's an epidemic across the country. Um, because we were not collecting, the, but this technology has existed for about 10 years, mm -hmm. this sort of exchange where you can still use, you know, um, privacy laws, HIPAA, to make sure that that's in place, but that having, you know, uh, having one's uh, medical information all in one place, you know, even as you move from doctor to doctor or use a different pharmacist or check into a different hospital or, you know, in some cases, um, you know, wind up in a safe house or, you know, police station, whatever it is, it's, it's still not there, you know, although we've had the technology for it. So that's, that's one example. And is it because the resource allocation, like the city just has a, a, a hundred bucks and it, like 80 of it went one place, 20 of it went another, and none of it could go there? Or is it just short-sightedness? I think a lot of it, what we're seeing is a lot of, it's, there, it's been like more, of a, it's, it's so hard, it's silos, siloed approach. So the technology solutions are stuck um, in one office that doesn't necessarily interact, or the, or call it the innovation office. You know, depending on, on where you are, they're not interacting. There wasn't well, looking back ten years, there probably weren't any innovations offices um, in a lot of government agencies, and um, and if there were people who knew about technology, it you know, it, it were not necessarily working actively to solve solutions with. It was more of a vendor approach. So what we're doing is um, more of a, a, a collaborative stakeholders all at the same table where we can um, you know, have the government, um, you know, the state of Ohio is working on a constitutional amendment to deal with this issue that will include you know, hopefully some changes in respect to adopt, being able to adopt tech, the technology in a, in a, in a more uh, expedient way. Um, you have the research institutions that can support to once we have the data, what does it mean? You know, maybe it could be the medical center or the or university at a, at a, at a, at, a, at a school. Um, you know, you have the practitioners, you have the um, technology companies, obviously that you know haven't had a lot of them have the solution for years, and but they don't know what, where to go with right. it, what to do with it. So, what Venture Smarter is, which is the the company that you are building now with a few other people, there's eleven in total. Yes. Uh, predominantly government folks. Um, we we're at the intersection of technology and government and business, um, and you know, I also have you know the nonprofit background, um, so we bring a, a variety of experiences together um, that um, really. Uh, help with that communication gap um, for those companies and those governments that are looking for solutions.
And so what Venture Smarter is doing is, is trying to solve this enormous problem that you just said of like, no one knows who to talk to or how to talk about it. So you're bringing folks together. So are you a, you know, we, we, you and I talked a bit about Venture Smarter. I'm just still trying to figure out, is it a consulting firm with some products? Is it a tech startup that's figuring out the best way to build a communications platform, which you guys are working on? What like is the core of, of what y'all are building at Venture Smarter? Um, and how do you think about applying it in, in, I guess, the short term, the next 12 to 18 months? Oh, yes. Um, that's a great question. So there are different ways to venture smarter. We have um, our platform where you, we, we're providing insights, opportunities, and the ability to engage and network, not only around the country, but globally. Mm -hmm. I've, used, I've been connected with some people actually through it, talking to somebody tomorrow through it. Very good, excellent. That's exactly, you know, eventually, um, you know, the second way is is, uh, is 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 direct consulting where we help assist and we help identify, okay, this is the solution you have. I, I understand that XYZ city or state is looking for this partner or this university is looking for this particular partner to pilot out something like that. You know, as an example, and, and helping companies um, grow their sales pipeline by plugging them into as many opportunities as possible. That's more of the consulting side. But the portal, we think, will eventually um, be automated that it'll, you'll be able to match um, more, more, uh, more, effect, more efficiently than us, you know, doing the, and that's what we hope for everyone, that they're, you know, trying to, um, you know, uh, decrease the, the time that it would take um, to get from, um, you know, something that's a proven, you know, innovation, you know, piloted out and, and um, you know, to, to market. Um, and then, you know, behind that, there's also uh, the standards that we're setting for smart cities that we're working with IEEE, the International Learners Association, to make sure that governments have a standard across the board. So as you're moving from state to state, city to city, borough to borough, you're, you're not necessarily um, completely changing the the, um, the 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 system so that there's interoperability. The tech companies have already done this on their side, and that's why you know you're able to travel with your phone to another country and still be able to use it. Um, the governments have not come together to agree on what. Uh, what, how that should look, and that's why we're working with the with the National uh, Association of Regional Councils, you know, the councils of governments, the because the approach that we that we took in Cincinnati, and we're we're, we're going to take um, in in other areas is a regional approach where we start have a hub in one particular place, but it must it must extend to the suburbs, it must extend to the rural areas. You make the center strong so that it, it is able to do that. And the goal is for everywhere to be 100% connected, 100% mobile, and 100% resilient. We are then providing the, the answers to get there through the, the ecosystem that we're building with um, these early smart city adopters that are part of Venture Smarter. So tell me about what you see changing in cities. Um, let's give it like a 10 year horizon. So a lot of data is coming in and that's awesome. But what physical change are we gonna expect? Like, uh, drones flying overhead, self-driving cars in certain areas, and, and, and how, let's start with self-driving cars. All right, so let's be specific. Self-driving cars is, is, is a technology that's talked about very often. There are certain states that are very friendly towards like Arizona, Florida, New Mexico. 
certain states don't know where they sit, like in California, you're allowed to run tests with self-driving cars, but you're not actually allowed to deploy, which means you might see little cars going around, but none of them are making any money or building any business. How might something like self-driving cars be implemented uh, into some of the cities that you work in? So, you know, it's another great example because, you know, they've been here for a while. Um, they're here more now, and we really do predict that um, that there's going to be a lot more, uh, a lot more self-driving vehicles all over, um, and, and of many different sizes. We think that they're great for show sort of um, experiences within campuses um, right now. So we're working on a few pilot programs um, with uh, closed areas like um, the logistic hub of an airport. Um, we're working on that at, at CPG, and you know, uh, you know, working with the University of Cincinnati, and so. There are others that, uh, that are being piloted in the middle of cities. So we have a pilot here in New York City, which is great because the data that you collect from that is so much better for, uh, and you can get it faster because there's so many more people. It's more interesting to look at that data than to some other, a place that's less populated. How does, such a, how does it work in New York? I've had a lot of conversations about this, and I know no pedestrian is ever going to stop for a car that knows if they know it's going to stop for them. <laughs> right. I'm going to cross the street, right. that car's going to stop, and the next person's going to cross the street, and that car's going to be stuck on, on 7th Avenue for days <laughs> until something happens and it can inch forward slowly. How do you actually, and this is part of a larger question, of how do older cities that have been around implement crazy new technologies, but how does it happen that a city that's established that has been around for, like, New York a few hundred years, or, like, uh, Paris, which is one of the oldest cities in Europe because it was a bomb during the war, that's been around for many hundreds of years, maybe even a thousand by certain judgments. How do cities like this bring in this super complicated and not always easy technology? Because it's not like you're just like putting sensors on benches to see how many people sit on it. Like that's one thing. If you're actually messing with the roads and redesigning architecture and, and building how, how do older cities even begin to think about doing this? So, yeah, so, I mean, it's amazing because, you know, it's, it's already started here. The governor put out um, an open call and is looking for more companies to come to New York to, to work with, with the city and the state on, on piling this out. Well, there ha does need to be, again, like a coordination among various agencies to make sure that, you know, that that you um, you understand the culture of that particular. It may be that you know there needs to be a little bit more uh, you know extra signage or um, you know you know an alert on your phone like that you know whatever whatever uh, way of communicating other than um, just have having a uh, being a car because it's it's that's that's um, that's self driven and, and without some sort of noise maybe maybe it's even in the design. Um, or dedicated lanes, that sort of thing. Just constant horns, just going off. I'm self-driving. Please don't mess with me. <laughs> right. I mean, it. I, I. There. But there will be so many more sensors. You know, when you look at Internet of Things, at that, the, all the, all, even the non-self-driving cars. You know, our, our average cars will be connected to each other and to other devices in and around that sidewalk and that street. There's going to be. We're moving towards. You know, a, a, in ten years from now. That the, they will be powered to, to kind of work with each other and talk to each other. And if you're an individual that has, you know, you know, a phone or a way of being alert, you, there'll be com better communication. And so that's what we're also working towards, rather than, um, you know, with the standards. 
so that you know, rather than bringing in sort of one um, idea at a time, we want to we're working with them to put an overall plan so that you know you'll be ready when there's that next thing, um, and because you'll already be set up with the with the right um, you know a, a sensors and communication at the street level to be to be able to um, you know to to make sure that the that that there's a certain amount of safety and uh, security associated because they're more, I mean, you know, eyes on the ground. How, it sounds really hard. <laughs> how, how, how difficult is this problem that you're working on? You know, we love challenges. I mean, all of us are sort of big thinkers who are, <laughs> who are part, of this, part of this group. And it, it's, it's a big, um, you know, just you can—it's big. You can see, you can see that. You know, um, and you know, in any, you know, any city in the U.S., there are, there's still a lot of challenges that are not solved. But you know, as I said, could be probably solved. But, but we—that's why we're sort of, you know, working at the local, very local level to make sure that um, that we're we're taking it, um, you know, very, uh, you know, very deliberately, and um, and you know, uh, one step in front of the other. Because the you know to, to we need the standards and interoperability, but there does have to definitely be that localized um, understanding and approach. And so the you know we think that if once everyone agrees to uh, overall standards, it'll be easier um, to to sort of proliferate the direction that that um, we understand that you know that cities want to go in. It's just that. Um, there, right now, there's just, it's just too much variety in the approach. And is that because all cities are different, or all people are different, and they have different needs and wants? And, and somebody in China wants to live in a different way than somebody in um, France and, and someone in New York, or it just no one's communicating. What do you it's, think? So you know, it's you know you, you can't treat Seoul the democratic Korea, countries. It's yeah. harder to you know you can't like just give one mandate also. Yeah. Um, but it's it. But the organic approach, I think, is what will at, at the end make the solutions more sustainable, and um, and putting to, and creating that sustainable framework is really is really the direct and an inclusive framework is really the direction that you want to go, rather than just coming in and saying this is going to be you know the best thing for you, and so um, you know the the standards are there um, to to gu as a guide, um, but you know the it's it's the it's you know. We're, we're taking you know one step at a time. Doing it right in Cincinnati means so much because um, it really is, is a is a good model that can be you know replicated. Now, if that might not be the right for solution for a, a smaller a community or a larger community, but that's why the portal exists to exchange those best practices. If you knew what um, was going on in a similarly situated um, a town or, or, or village or city in not even in the U.S. So many of the great innovation, because to your point about the um, legacy of older cities, they're happening in in, in places that um, are are far beyond you know um, the U the U.S. and you know it's it is it is somewhat of a business issue for those most established. Uh, technology providers that have, you know, had, you know, their system has been the system that, you know, JFK uses for the past 40 years. Um, I, I'm not sure if you um, were aware of the flood that happened at Terminal I heard, 4. I was away, but I heard about it. 
So, um, and, it, and for some companies, it's better just to pay the, the insurance than upgrading. We are trying to give those um, companies um, opportunities to the larger, to that more established, that service the government to engage with the um, newer newer providers that are, have a different approach, so that they don't necessarily have to go out of business if you know and be replaced. They can just you know maybe you know buy out, partner, white label, whatever it is that new that newer more um, effective way of doing business. And so it's it's that's why we're bringing all the different you know stakeholders to the table for that sort of exchange to happen, because um, as I said, you look at uh, some of the newer cities and you know you, you see that Cisco is spending a billion dollars on on smart cities. Bill Gates just you know a bought a bought lab. Bought a city, <laughs> city <yeah. laughs> as one does. And yeah, right. <laughs> when you're Bill Gates. I need a city. <laughs> right. We're on we're on looking for a city. So yeah. if anyone knows any cities that need for, for like fifty to sixty bucks. <laughs> right. Is what I'm working on. <laughs> right. Uh, we'll get a city. <laughs> you know, and so so you know you it's there might be um, you know uh, particular. Uh, solutions that haven't yet reached the U.S. just because of the lack of communication or the inability for that technology provider to understand how to do business here. So we're also looking next year to really expand our international practice. We have folks reaching out to us from all over the world, but um, you know we're, we're starting it one step in front of the other. You know um, we 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 have a number of projects. Um, uh, Throughout the country, but in terms of building these regional hubs, uh, that's 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 really the the the, the work that Venture Smarter does. Then also helping companies, you know, in, individually for their specific needs. But we want to take this and bring it to the New York Tri-State area, the you know DC uh, DMV. You know, we just trying to park, um, and 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 you know, and, and build out this sustainable model because. What's happening uh, with technology is moving so fast, and the governments have a responsibility to make sure that their citizens are it's somehow um, access, access, being able to get access to that, you know, that you know those the opportunities that are coming out of it, to um, for themselves to take advantage. But it, there's really um, at the baseline um, still a need just to for connectivity, um, and and and. You know the president's uh, uh, announcement about 5G recently. Um, what did About bringing 5G to the, to the United States. Okay. You know, that's that's great. I mean, there's still a lot of places um, that don't have any. You know, so there's still a lot of like we can talk about drones flying around delivering pizzas or sensors on every building, knowing exactly how much sunlight is going in. There's still places that need internet. Yes. And there's still places that need hot water. Yes. And there's still a lot to do, uh, in a lot of. America, one of the wealthiest places in the, in the world, let alone much of the rest of the world. Like I, I recently met somebody who was trying to do the first ever so, like uh, business-sponsored solar project in Colombia, in South America. Like, the first ever. In a large, like, not totally third world country, not they've never all, yeah. had anything like that. So there's still a lot of things to be right. done. Right, I mean, you look at um, Bogota, Medellin, they're, you know, they're, they're touted for the, some of the most advanced cities. In yeah, Medellin. every single park there is faster Wi-Fi than a Starbucks in New York. Mm -hmm. You can walk around and, and, and FaceTime people in a park in Medellin. I was just there last summer, and there's that connectivity is everywhere, but there's so much else still lacking there. Right, so we're, you know, we're basically putting together the toolkit for, you know, 
it's great to have um, X, but you also need Y, and, and these elements will make you make your community smarter. You know, I, I was at previously at um, the Jamaica Business Improvement District in Queens, and we did not have uh, broadband, um, but we were lucky enough to win the number one award for downtown revitalization in New York State. Um, and I, I, you know, we I, we had put forward a strategy around. Um, you know, uh, digital literacy for upper mobility of the neighborhood. The first step, there was a five point plan, the first step was getting that. And we're lucky that we were able to put the majority of those funds, so hopefully by next year. And there's over, you know, 400 businesses there. It was, you know, rated um, number one neighborhood in New York City for real estate. There's a, lo a lot happening there um, in terms of um, retail and mixed use development. It's about 250,000 people, the size of, you know, most of the cities around the US, and we still didn't have broadband. You know, if you're a business, you couldn't run your credit card machine, you, you couldn't establish the accounting practices that would um, uh, you know, help you grow later as you're seeking more capital. And you know, advertising online, you were, how could you compete if you didn't? So you know, I'm, I'm really glad that, that we were able to get that support from the state. There are many other urban areas that have also not had broadband, many other rural and suburban that don't have the speed. And it's, it's a problem um, that we're actively looking to, to fix um, so that uh, we could, you know, make sure that everyone's included in, in, you know, what we're seeing happening and can, you know, can have access to it in terms of, um, you know, job opportunities, in terms of education, healthcare. What technologies do you not expect to come around as quickly as other people do? That would be uh, more of a challenge, um, and that could be you know maybe something will work in uh, somewhere in rural Arizona that won't work in New York. But what 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 do people expect that you say, hey, this is not going to happen for quite a while longer, and, and why? <laughs> and that's so hard for me to answer because I not as a pessimist, but as I'll like somebody who's you know, living it. You know, I was driving back uh, with my family after Thanksgiving, and we started talking about smart fridges. So, you know, the, the you know, Which are gonna be who huge. needs to know <laughs> who needs a TV? Who needs to know what's exactly in it? You know, um, who needs to know that you you know oh, you had too much chocolate that night? <laughs> Whatever. And this, and we, when we got back to my apartment, my fridge was flooded and broken. And we, you know, we had to take it. Most most things were spoiled. We had to take things on the terrace until the GE. Um, you know, um, technician could come days later, so it's hard for me. So to you see. needed to know. <laughs> I needed to know, and we had a conversation really like maybe that's too far. So I, it's hard for me to answer that because I, you know, if somebody invented it, there probably somebody needed it somewhere along the line, and um, you know, looking at um, um, where VR is going, um, some people say that you know that's just more like sort of fun and games, but I really do think that. Even that can be used um, for so many um, other um, purposes in terms of like edu education, training, um, getting people to get into the habits for a better pop to, to you know so that um, you know better habits are take you know are, are developed. I mean, it's it's hard for me to say that say that I don't see adoption um, for a particular for uh, at all. Um, but you know, for a longer time, I mean, even that it's so hard to know what would. Um, what uh, what solutions would um, help mitigate, you know, the the challenges for a particular set of technology? So I think everything is possible. <laughs> I really do. I really do think anything anything is possible.
right. I think we can do it. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, th- I mean, I think we can definitely do it. I think I'll answer my own question yeah, there yeah, and say um, self-driving cars, for instance. I'm super hyped about it. I think it's a marvelous, I think it's an amazing technology. I think it could save tens of thousands of lives around the United States every year. I think it can totally reinvent what it means to have leisure time. I th- all these wonderful things. I was talking to my mom about this. She's like, Adriel, you're being so stupid. There's no way a car will ever drive itself anytime before like 2050. It's just not gonna happen. And you know, I, I work in, like she's a pharmaceutical representative and a super smart lady, but she just didn't like think about it as much. But most people don't think that something like a self-driving car can work in a city like New York. Because for that to work, you need to shut down, you can't just say like, you can't transition it, right? You can't have a bunch of regular New York asshole drivers on the road with some very sweet Google, like adorable self-driving cars, because those are gonna lose. So you need to like shut down entire areas. So for self-driving Not necessarily. No? All right, so tell, tell me So San, San Francisco has, um, um, uh, has self-driving vehicles in and around the city. And you know, and, you know we're, we are piloting here in New York. Um, well, what are they doing? Are they just driving around tracking data mapping? Um, yeah, and you know, and then using that to to figure out uh, so then have that that that, that challenge. How do, how does it um, coexist with people, with pets, with um, the random you know deer that might you know cross the, the yeah, highway with tourists? Tourists, yeah. yeah. All right, <laughs> um, so there's. No I think yeah, I really I I don't see any limits. So so, I mean, we yeah, I really do think that you know human ingenuity is just such a beautiful thing, and and you know if if it's you know something that we decide that policy would be good, it'll get the mayor's uh, vision zero initiative that um, you know still a lot of challenges. There. Vision zero being what? Being that you know zero people dying on the, you know from you know transportation incidents in and around New York City. I, I saw a really amazing. Uh, documentary recently about Grand Central that apparently was a death trap for many years. You know, coming in and out, taking the trains, apparently people die all the time, and it was sort of a regular sort of thing that happened. Wow. Um, so I guess we're a lot better than, you know, than yeah, we're, than progress. But we now it only happens on the Long Island Railroad, apparently. <laughs> There's, you know, you know, we are hoping that, you know, that these infrastructure challenges, um, can be solved sometimes that you know that that uh, still you know all the all the stats say talk you know they compare human error to in where you know there's still you know you know we're not able to um, to catch up as fast. I mean, autonomous vehicles are already beyond um, yeah they are capability. Basically, the answer is if you start driving when you're 18 years old and you drive every single minute of every single day for your entire living life, from 18 to let's say 90 years, you will have like 0.1% of the miles driven that all autonomous cars have right now, because they share all that information. They just drive all the time, and they just track data, they run simulations, and so they can just be smarter, be safer, be more intelligent, uh, be quicker uh, than any person can, but people still don't believe that. I just saw a Deloitte study that said, I think 79% of people are afraid of self-driving cars and are convinced that humans drive better than a robot ever will. Wow. 
Wow. It's scary because I, I don't really like, I've been in a bunch of car accidents. I'm not a great driver and I'm a regular person. Well, you know, I'm like insurance categorically terrible driver, young 24 year old male. But like, it's just, it's, it's, it's very important that certain technologies do make quick leaps because they do have a lot of lives to save and a lot of things to change. Right, right, and that's why we're going, at, you know, we're taking the legislative approach. We're working on another a bill in California. I mean, you would think, how, you know, so we're, ta we're working with the, um, the, you know, the city councils, um, you know, we're, we're, we're passing a few resolutions related to, you know, these areas that we've been talking about at the, at the local level to, to say that, um, you know, let's, let's, Let's change the way that we've been looking at technology, taking it outside. One thing that happened in, uh, with the new governor in Virginia, he uh, took the, the technology agency and has broken it up. And so there's going to be a deputy under the Secretary of Commerce, there's going to be another asset at another agency, and then another at his. And so, so that it's, you, you see the, you see the, um, the, the knowledge um, all throughout, uh, and Virginia, they have so many great technology companies there. Right. I mean, but even in that state, the way the approach is, is now going to be, it's, it's a different approach. And, you know, you, you, again, uh, President Obama also made it, made it important that every agency um, have its own sort of innovation office um, dealing with um, technology many times, not all the time. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of ways to innovate government. but. Uh, that 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 trend we are seeing is is, is um, and, and also the more of awareness we see. I think the city of um, of San Antonio they just created a technology committee within their city council, and so you know I, I do have a lot of hope that um, that and, and it's because you know you know um, people in those roles have kids, and um, you know they may not may or may not believe that that X Y Z is coming. But um, they do have a responsibility to prepare their cities for it. I have one final question. I have many final questions, but I'm going <laughs> to pick one. Why in 1999 did you, a Duke grad from one of the best schools in the country, with an interest in technology, with a, a great job at PwC doing consulting, why did you decide to go into government? Yeah, you know, I ask my question. <laughs> That's a question a lot. <laughs> and then now you left. And now you just left. Oh, well, you sort of left government. Yeah. Now you're working for a startup that's working. Why did you decide to leave? Or why did you decide to get into it? Why? Like, why? <laughs> I, I was just so inspired by the, you know, it seemed like a really unique opportunity at the time. Um, and But it wasn't until I was actually in it. And the incredible people that um, you meet. Um, that and it was just government was just beginning. You know, uh, Vice President Gore had a, uh, he was in charge of the reinventing government um, move uh, campaign and and made a lot of changes that improved government on government uh, of delivery of services and um, and red tape and and cutting back costs and that sort of thing. So you're beginning to see you know innovative ways to look at government um, and it was the a combination of the people that were so inspiring and forward-thinking that you believe it or not that you find in you know working in, and that are passionate about making outcomes better for people I, it was just you know it was really just being inspired and once and you know a lot of it, it, there's a lot of cynicism today 
Um, and that's exactly it. You know, for the most part, people who are in government and who are, you know, e even in politics, um, who who could be, you know, you know, uh, earning more, at, you know, at a yeah, you're not here for the money. Yeah, and, and those who are in there for money, they get in trouble, you know? Because <laughs> some, unfortunately, yeah. some of them are, you know? Um, and that's also where you see some of the problems in terms of, you know, changes and that sort of thing. But it really, you know, it, it was um, also some mentorship um, by uh, um, older uh, people telling me, this, this is a really great, where you are is a really great place, um, since you are passionate about these issues, to, to be able to make a difference. And you know, really, it's all about making an impact. And for me, that was that was the road that I thought that I could um, could do that. And so I'm always looking for that, you know, in you know everything that I do. Um, I lied. I do have one more question. Um, so 2018, one of my personal New Year's resolutions is uh, revolving around gratitude. Um, I think it feels really, really good to say very specifically what one is grateful for and who one is grateful for. So, in light of this new experiment of mine, I would love to hear, uh, and I'm going to ask every guest this from today through the rest of 2018, but two or three mentors who you've had in your life would love their name, where you met them. There's a quick sentence or two of, of something meaningful uh, you learned from there or that they left with. Well, um, I have to start with my mom because she's my mom and my mentor. Um, she's just she's always been encouraging. Um, told me to try, e try even when um, odds didn't look great. But you know, encouraged me to always you know take that chance, give it a shot. Um, don't be afraid of rejection. And as long as you're trying your best, you know, is is really that always you know sort of in the back of my mind, especially when I you know when I, I fall short on something. Mm -hmm. So um, very grateful for her. Her name is Yvonne Kamalanen, um, and uh, Yvonne Kamalanen is a snippy. And then I, I would say that um, another mentor, um, Rita Jo Lewis, who has a similar background to mine, so I was able to, we were able to sort of connect. She was my uh, boss at the, uh, the State Department, and currently she's with the German Marshall Fund, continuing the work that we were doing around connecting mayors and governors and building capacity and leadership capacity at the local level. Um, and you know, she, has, she has a you know, mixed business government background. She also uh, worked for President Clinton in the first term, but has always been able to figure out ways um, to impact policy through um, her skill set, which is you know, law and government. And so she's had a, a very big impact on me. And you know, she just works so hard and and um, and sh and showed me that how much it, it pays off by doing that and never shy away from from that hard work. Um, and so she's she's just been really great for me. And um, I would have to say that um, you know another person that has had a really great influence um, on me in terms of the work that he's done is Emar um, Rangaswamy from In Diaspora Group, and he also runs Eco Forum with some of the largest. Um, cor uh, corporations in the U.S. What was that name? Ecoforum. No, uh, the guy's name. Oh, Mr. Regaswamy. Mr. Regaswamy. And you know he's uh, in the uh, in the uh, Silicon Valley world and out uh, of California. So talking to him, especially being on the East Coast from time to time, helps with um, you know making sure that I were on top on top of those trends that are happening and seeing what's coming down the line. And he's you know angel investor, but um, he's taken um, his network and converted it to, so he runs a group called In Diaspora that 
works with the Indian diaspora in the U.S., but they're also um, very involved with what's what you're seeing now between U.S., India, and Israel. And I, I believe that Netanyahu is visiting um, Modi next week or the week after that. And having the having the U.S. diaspora, Indian diaspora involved with that, but there's so much there for for everybody around innovation in terms of you know, these three countries being the most with you know entrepreneurs and. Um, in this area, so in technology, and all, he also runs a group called Eco Forum that uh, has gotten our, you know, the top uh, U.S. Uh, you know blue chip companies to invest in um, in looking at their companies in a more sustainable way. And so, um, you know, these uh, you know talk, talking to people like them have have encouraged me, but also helped me uh, plan out strategically. So how can I? Continue to um, you know use the skills I have, develop them, keep learning, keep working hard, and uh, you know taking chances to to um, to make an impact in the world. Awesome. Well, that is a killer way to start off 2018 <laughs> with those wise words, Rhonda. Thank you so much for the last hour. This has been awesome. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Best of luck to you in 2018. Thank you. You too. And there you have it, Ranta Binda. Data is what's going to bring cities into the future. Success in politics, just like in business, is about collaboration and risk-taking. And tomorrow, tomorrow is going to look nothing like today. If you liked what you heard, check out the blog at adrielcc.blogspot.com and join the Curious City newsletter, where I send out a few fun articles, a cool startup to watch, and a proprietary rant by me full of philosophy, humor, and unsubstantiated opinions about technology and the future. The read won't take you more than 60 seconds every week, and it's a fun way to spend a minute. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.